Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. This is Reset. I'm Jen White. Saeed Jones' new memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives, is at once raw and painful and achingly beautiful. Jones writes about growing up Black and gay and trying to figure out how to carve out an identity separate from the people he loves most, an identity that is authentically him and space where he can find joy in himself. The memoir has received critical praise and is a 2019 Kirkus Prize finalist. Jones was in Chicago last night for a talk at the American Writers Museum and stopped by our studios for a conversation. Saeed Jones, welcome to Reset. Thank you. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Well, in the memoir, I kept coming back to this idea, this theme about things that are left unsaid. Yeah. Especially between people who love one another. Mm -hmm. How much of this memoir was about having a conversation you needed to have with yourself? You know, the book is is certainly a love letter to my mother, and I can't have those conversations with her again. She passed away in 2011, and and that's a part of the book as well. I can't go back and redo them, and that's just a fact of life. But the gift of writing is that you can not just write about what happened at the time, you know, the conversation that didn't happen. You are allowed to use essentially double consciousness, uh, a literary double consciousness, to add that double layer of not just here is what happened, but also here is what I wish had happened. Here's what I have learned about why XYZ didn't happen. You know, you can bring the generosity of the years that have um, happened since then. When I was in graduate school, a writing mentor of mine, Rigoberto Gonzalez, wonderful poet, he told me, he was like, Said, don't write one of these chapters like you were still 14 years old. Hmm. You are not. He was like, let what you have learned impact how you are writing about it. Don't write with the same naivete, even if you're writing about a moment when you were naive. Mm -hmm. As you said, so much of the memoir is built around your relationship with your mom. Tell us about your mother. Yeah, my mom raised me as a single parent. My parents divorced when I was very young. She was from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, She worked for Delta Airlines for a long time. My entire life, really, she was working in one way for another. But when I was a kid, she was a flight attendant. And I say that because travel was an important part of her life. And though she went to college but wasn't able to graduate, I think the experience of traveling and seeing the world really informed her and and gave her a worldly kind of perspective that then she passed on to me. Um, She kept that spirit in our household. Uh, She was always learning new recipes from watching cooking TV. Like every night we were eating something totally different, you know. Um, She read three newspapers a day and in fact she had a separate purse. She had like a purse purse, but then she had like her bag that was (laughs) really for, and I think a lot of women do, but it was like her bag mostly so she could have her copy of the USA Today, the New York Times, and the Dallas Morning News, you know, carrying around with her. Um, And she loved talking about politics. She loved to laugh and and love style and she was so excited about her new nail color you know she she was just really a woman of the world and people were drawn to her and i was deeply drawn to her and and almost um 
mystified. There was a, a, a memory that was almost too painful to put in the book that I like. I thought would actually overwhelm the book chapter where it would have appeared chronologically. I was in middle school, and I had a jerk of a history teacher at one point. He was just a mean man. And she came in for a parent-teacher's you know, conference, and I was so excited that this mean man was going to meet my beautiful, sophisticated mom and be like, I'll show you. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And she came in, and he was thrown you know i saw and i was just like mm-hmm, sitting next to her like that's right that's my mama um and i just felt so good and i remember marching into class the next day just feeling like so proud all of a sudden you know and i think he was aware of it and just before the class started he walked up to me and he said said your mother is so beautiful what happened to you mm. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> mm. You know, I went from cloud nine to sub-zero ten. I mean, just like it just knocked me low, you know. Um, and so I, I say that to say that, like, you know, I was very aware. The way you feel about my mom, you know, as a reader, maximize that, multiply it. And that's what I felt. And sometimes it was overwhelming, sure, you know. But also I think the sense of forceful insistence on being who I am, no matter the cost that you see emerge over the course of the book, even though my mom and I are not good at talking about my being gay. We're not. That is the one bridge we cannot cross together. I think I got that insistence on self from her because I just saw that and I was you, and you, you li- literally living with it. I think you inherit it in a way. Yeah. It, it also seemed that your care for one another. Mm-hmm. You're both in, intensely protective of one another. But part of what that translated into was not talking about certain things. Right. Not talking right. about um, the fact that you're gay. Not talking about her health. Right. Where were those places where that protection mm-hmm. turned into something that didn't serve you? I think her health was really a, a struggle because the thing about health in our country is that it's also a discussion about money. You can't really thoughtfully talk about one person's health without talking about the reality of class and money, you know? So I'm always advocating for therapy. Therapy has been a really important part of my life, especially in the last few years. But I have to say, I don't know the reality of your finances. I don't know if you have health insurance, you know. And so just as a kid, I certainly didn't have all this nuance, but I was aware that my mom had a lifelong heart condition. We knew that. She had been – I have memories as a kid of her being in the hospital and being unwell, having to stay with family members a couple of times when she was in the hospital for a few weeks. And so we were aware of the precariousness. But it was a silence because it's like, well, what do you do? And heart disease, which is a crisis, particularly for black women in this country, it's it's a huge, huge crisis. The thing about heart disease is that it doesn't – a person doesn't necessarily look like they are sick. It's almost like a perfect metaphor for the working poor, which, you know, I think my mom was that in some way. She was living paycheck to paycheck. We would have been easily devastated by, um, you know, those weird three- or four-day holiday weekends and it coincides with the bank holiday and then the check doesn't come. Ooh, that was a problem, you know. And so heart disease is kind of like that. You're going about your business and you can seem okay. And that makes it even more difficult, especially if you're a kid, to talk to your mom. And then the other part of that was she was a lifelong smoker. 
and really struggled. And I would see her try to quit. Like she would have a heart flare up. She had congestive heart failure. And then, and I mentioned there's a scene in the book. And there are many incidents like this where months later she ends up smoking again. She would finally kind of get to see a doctor and get medication that will, um, you know, I think help, you know, cut down the addiction. And I think at one point she was taking a pill that was supposed to help with the nicotine addiction. And she took it for a few weeks. And I remember she came to me and I must have been early in college at this point, old enough to kind of have this conversation. And my mom started crying. She just started sobbing. And I was like, what's wrong? You know, I think I was like watching TV and she just came out into the living room to talk to me. I was like, what's wrong? And she was like, I can't take this medication anymore. She was like, Saeed, it gives me terrible, terrible nightmares. Terrible nightmares. She couldn't even describe them. You know, that where yeah. she's like, I saw her trying to, and she was like, I can't even. Her eyes started shining with tears again. So that was the dynamic. You know, I saw her suffering, and I feel bad as a high school kid. Oh, man, being a kid is just a mess. Um, I dumped out all of her cigarettes once, but mm-hmm. kept the pack and wrote a note for her, like begging her to quit and put it in, put it in the carton for her to find later. Mm-hmm. And you know, that was, I, I was fighting for my mom's life in that moment. But what, a, I mean, can you imagine as a single parent to like open, oh my gosh, you know, because clearly there was a relationship between stress, depression. And I, I think by the time I was in college, my mom was beginning to use the language of, I have struggled with depression. That was something she fe- began to feel comfortable saying, you know, even as I didn't realize until years later, actually writing the book that I was like, oh my, me too. Huh? You know, that was a silence that the book helped me, you know, identify. Um, But I saw that depression, stress, really, frankly, just being a black mom in America, being a black woman in America, she couldn't afford regular therapy. She couldn't afford regular health care. Even when she was seeing doctors, I remember there would be lapses in her um, heart medication because she couldn't afford the prescription at times. You know, so all of that is connected. And so, yeah, she ends up smoking her cigarette when she gets home from work. Mm -hmm. And over time, you see that. And sometimes you just go, you know what, I'm going to let her have that cigarette. You know, we're talking to poet Saeed Jones. His new memoir is How We Fight for Our Lives. There is a moment in the in the memoir when you come out to your mom on the phone mm-hmm. formally mm-hmm. and she gets off the phone with you and then she calls you back. Right. And I just want you to read for us from there. Sure. So our initial conversation was in the middle of the afternoon. I was on my way to class. And as the day has gone on, I've started to stress out about it. And I met a friend starting to get drunk on that cheap sangria college students would drink. Um, And so this is the beginning of the phone call. I forgot to say that I love you, Mom said, almost frantically, like she was racing to catch the comet's tail end of our previous conversation. For a moment, it felt like we were both catching our breath. I love you, Saeed, she said. And honestly, you sound happy. And if you're happy, I'm happy. After I hung up, her words seemed to hang in the air, hovering amid the fireflies. I stayed out on the porch, drinking the sangria, watching the evening shadows eat away at the light. I was happy. But the moment didn't feel like I thought it would. It wasn't final. It dissipated just as the dusk did just as the fireflies fled. In retrospect, I think I didn't feel as if the burden had been lifted because my being gay was never actually the burden. 
There was still so much I had not told my mother, so much I knew that I probably would never tell her. I had come out to my mother as a gay man, but within minutes, I realized I had not come out to her as myself. What part of you do you think you were holding back? Ooh, well, you know, a lot. (laughs) I mean, you know, at this point, I'm a freshman in college, which is to say I was almost a decade into a really complicated ongoing dynamic with my grandmother. The summer of 1999, you see in the book, uh, my mom would send me to stay with my grandmother so that she could save money and, you know, hopefully have a little less stress and all of that, you know. And um, that had gone on for as long as I can remember. And, And that summer, 1999, my grandmother started taking me to church even more so than she had before. And it culminated in her asking a pastor basically to put a curse on on my mother or maybe she didn't ask him to but that's what happened and it was deeply painful it was traumatizing by the time I got back to Texas I started having anxiety attacks and panic attacks um and I never told my mom about it um and so that was a part it was an essential part of myself like your mom did something horrible and I'm not going to tell you about it because she's your mom And aren't you already going through enough is kind of how I felt. So that was a part of myself, something that I'd been struggling with and a silence that had been, frankly, metastasizing. Um, And also at that point, you know, as I mentioned in the book, you know, being gay was not the burden. Uh, I never felt that my sexuality was my problem. I was like, I know being gay is not my problem. It's y'all's problem. It's Texas's problem. It's America's problem. But figuring out sexuality, figuring out the reality of desire. How do you know when you love someone, when you like them? How do you know when you just want to have sex with them once and never again? How do we do this safely? What are messy, confusing nights and terrible, traumatic nights that deserve to be remembered and framed as such? What is you made a bad decision and you are a victim? How do you navigate all of that? And, you know, listen, I don't think Anyone in America is very good at navigating those kinds of conversations. And so how could I come out to my mom in that way? There was just like so much more going on. And I think certainly then this is what uh, the, what, maybe it was 2005, um, you know, marriage equality isn't a reality yet. And I think this has changed a bit, but gay men, gay women having sex is so sexualized. I think for a lot of people in this country, you know, if you ask people to draw images of love, what does what does love look like? What does it look like when Jen's in love? You know, and there are all of these images that come holding hands, dinner, a wedding, a family. Okay, Saeed is gay. What does it look like when Saeed is in a relationship? And it's all these sexual images. It's lurid, you know. And so I think it's difficult for queer people with our family members to have these conversations because I think we see the lurid images kind of flashing behind their eyes when we're like, I just want to ask you, like, how to talk to my boyfriend. And so that's one of the scenes in the book where I'm just like, I I really want to be able to talk to you, mom, about you're a grown woman and I'm a young man and we've both loved men. <laughs> and I think you know some stuff. You know, I'm always telling people, I'm like, listen, being gay is not a choice because men are trash. 
And <laughs> if I had an option, I would totally be dating a woman or a gender non-binary person because it's not worth it. Uh, but I just felt like, mom, like, how do we, what do we do, you know? Yeah. Um, and it just, it was just really hard for us. We didn't have the language. Well, coming, you know, through the memoir, it occurred to me that what you write about is something I think a lot of people, most people experience. And that's this navigation we do between mm. identities. Yeah. Like, who am, who am I when I'm a son? Right. Who am I when I'm a grandson? Right. Who am I when I'm uh-huh. a teenage boy? Right. And now as an adult man, mm-hmm. how have those identities perhaps cemented? Mm-hmm. Until May, I was working at BuzzFeed News, yeah. and it was a really wonderful experience. Uh, I started working there in 2012. For whatever reason, it was the first job in my life. And again, I was there for six years and I had a lot of roles and I kept getting promoted more responsibility where my entire self was welcomed into the room. And early on, I remember when I got hired, I was like scared to tweet. I was like, uh-oh. You're not oh, anymore. No, oh, no. And Ben said, the way you tweet is part of the reason you're here. You better keep tweeting. You know, and he was like, and don't change your language either. You curse, you code switch, you did it. Don't stop. That's part of what we're doing here. The first thing he did, he said, he sat down with me and he said, I read the essay you wrote about Phoenix, Arizona. You published it in The Rumpus. And I bring that up now because that is the heart of this book, mm-hmm. right? Um, and he said, I wish we could publish stuff like that on BuzzFeed. And it almost knocked me. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? You know, this man from the beginning wanted to publish that essay about queerness and internalized homophobia, masculinity and race on BuzzFeed.com. That experience, I think, helped me develop the confidence to be my full self all the time. It cemented it. It showed me why it was important. It showed me why I was so good at my job because of it. I mean, imagine a culture editor who obsessively, as I am, thinks about all of these different facets of identity and how we communicate and media. It was like I was like almost the perfect candidate. And it was totally just because of the crucible that I had been raised in, you know, about 95 percent of us, you know, hold back when we walk into our jobs. And we just consider that being professional, typically, you know. (laughs) I don't. Uh, (laughs) And so if you're fortunate enough to be in that other 5% and do all of that, and it works, and it pays off, and you see the value in other people do, you just refuse to let go of it. One of the lines that jumped out in the memoir, and I I think it appears maybe about halfway through, you write, and I'll quote you here, I believed that I could control any story I told. If something happened, I could write about it, own it, resolve it. Mm-hmm. Simple. Mm-hmm. On the other side of writing this memoir, mm-hmm. what does ownership of your story look like and feel like? Ooh, deep humility. I believe I'm a very good writer. Uh, my my ability to write is the one thing I will never let anyone convince me is not accurate. Um, but even still, you know, as you see in the book, uh, writing does not destroy dynamics. It only allows us to perhaps engage them, to think about them. But if it's still going on, it's still going on. So I try to have no illusions that writing the book, literally closing a chapter, means it's the end of what I'm learning from these experiences. You know, I finished the book and I was like, well, I'm never writing about grief again. That was, <laughs> you know. And then I, I, a few months ago, I finally start writing poems again and I'm so happy. And my goodness, they are the scariest 
most grief stricken. <laughs> I sit back from the, and they're I like them. They're great, but I sit back like, oh my goodness, whoa. You know, I, I, it's an interesting aspect of my writing um, is that it just feels like people, you know, are on Instagram and Twitter, and that's a real joy of being a writer in the 21st century is that readers can access you and and cheer you on. People are like, I just bought the book. You know, I'm on the train getting ready to get to part four, and I'm like, no, <laughs> don't do it. Someone's like, I'm reading on my lunch break. I'm like, they're like, Memphis 19. I'm like, no, <laughs> wait away. until you're home. Yeah, because it, it feels like I've built this haunted house that I survived. And that's what it is. It's like writing helped me parse these experiences and organize them into a structure that allows me to tell a story. But it is still scary. And um, it is a bit harrowing as a writer knowing what's in that haunted house, watching readers <laughs> You know, cheering and posting pictures of the book and like thumbs up. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, because all of the joy and my smiles, my laughter, my long winded answers are colored by what they are, you know, reflected in. They they, they are the opposite of, of so much of my past. I think I'm so happy and so overjoyed and loud because for so long I was just it was like the dark side of the moon. But life is still life. (laughs) That's poet Saeed Jones. His memoir is called How We Fight for Our Lives. Saeed, it's been so great to talk to you. I am, you know, your number one fan. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, are we sure we can't call the memoir like making Saeed Jones? No, that's not cool. All right, fine. This is just an absolute deal. We also got time. time. (laughs) The sequel. If you enjoyed that conversation as much as we did, give the podcast a quick rating. It helps other people find us. And that's it for your Sunday Reset. We'll drop a new show on your feed at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. It's perfect timing for listening on your commute home or while you're getting dinner ready. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.